a.m. East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello again, this is Burl Schwartz talking. One of our favorite annual projects at City Pulse is the People Issue, which we published two weeks ago, January 6th. As we've done for five years now, we singled out 10 local folks whom we found interesting and broadly representative of our community. They aren't necessarily well-known outside their immediate circles, but uh, they are getting things done. Or they may have retired after a long, a lifetime, rather, of achievements. One of the uh, highlights of this project is working with photographer Khalid uh, Ibrahim, owner of Eat Pomegranate Photography here in Lansing. Over the years, we've evolved from black and white photos to color. Last year, we got everyone together for a group shot as well as individual portraits. This year, of course, presented with social distancing and masks, a bigger challenge. But Ibrahim had a solution and uh, he pulled it off beautifully using uh, iPhone and iPad technology to take pictures by digital magic. And they included an inset of the photographer himself, revealing, as it were, the wizard behind the curtain. Last week on the show, we brought you snippets of five interviews. Today, the rest. First up is an artist, Westsider Bob Rose, 63 years old. Bill Castanier interviewed him. Tell me what you like about the West Side and why you live there. Um, you know, I grew up in in Bay City, up in Essexville, up in uh, the up there in the Minton, uh, where the thumb comes together. Uh, and uh, the thing that I remember is is living on a street, Thompson Street, where it was a very uh, you know, houses were close to the sidewalk, and neighbors talked to each other. So you know, when I when I found you know I looked at the West Side and. Number one, the roads are just uh, amazingly um, twisting and turning, and they're, they're not straight, and so it's uh, it's got a real cool vibe to it there. Uh, plus, plus some pretty cool folks in the neighborhood and such, and has a has a steep history um, of the auto industry and 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 other uh, things relevant to Lansing uh, and the African American community and. And Harry's Place and and uh, Durant and uh, one thing I really like about it and I when I when I did find a house here was a porch and having a porch is is magic because you're so close to sidewalk you can actually have a conversation a casual conversation with somebody who walks by so um, people are are seem more wanting to chat about it you know we we see these new subdivisions where the garages is the front of the house as opposed to the garage being in the back, like in the West side neighborhood and some of the older neighborhoods in Lansing. So it's really kind of, uh, it's kind of nice to be able to, uh, to talk and communicate with your neighbors and folks walking by. And it's, uh, it's, it's old school, but it's, it's great. Great way to, great way to have a sense of community. Now you probably met some pretty interesting people there just sitting on your front porch. Oh my gosh, it's, you, you, uh, from, you know, first of all, you meet people's dogs. That's how you know people first in the neighborhood. <laughs> you know them by their dogs. So 
I remember walking my dog and people yelling out, hey, Rocky. I'm like, my name's Bob. <laughs> no, the dog. Oh, okay. So, but you meet, you know, you, you meet a variety of people here that from politicians to, uh, to, to folks in the media um, and, uh, and, and educators and artists and musicians. And it's just, it's such a cool, cool vibe to it. And through the 490, you know, Pave the Way project with the Historical Society I'm working with you on and, and such, it's and meeting the people in that just, it, it just made the neighborhood even, even bigger and, and just historically, um, you learn so much about it and how the vibe of the, of the community was um, and still is in some senses, but some of the things we lost when, when 496 went through. So it's, uh, there's a sense of community here and uh, a sense of looking after each other, you know, so, and you meet people like the folks at Harry's place who are, are extremely generous and kind people. And, and uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, having the Overland school next door and J and J appliance, which is the old Durant building. Great stuff. You know, what, how did you end up in Lansing from Bay city Essex? So, I mean, what was your, the path that you took? Where did you go? Oh, that was an interesting path. So first my dad, uh, got a job up in, uh, working on the dams for the consumers power company. Um, up there in, on the Asabo. So he worked the last two dams, the foot and cook dams up there. And uh, we went up there for my junior and senior year, and then I went up to Michigan Tech. And then about that time, uh, I thought forest technology is not the way for me and didn't pay a lot of money. So I went, I like surveying, so I went to the civil engineering tech school and uh, and came down and into a recession and moved <laughs> out to Colorado for a couple of years. Uh, then I came back to the, to the Great Lakes state, you know, cause I don't know, it just drew me back. So, um, got it, you know, still the recession was going on. I worked at the nuclear power plant up in Midland as a technician up there. And that was interesting cause it was, it was after they discovered the, the facility was settling. The foundation was settling. So, we got to work underneath the foundation of the building, doing underpinning to keep the building from settling anymore. So that was kind of interesting. Did that facility ever open? It never opened as a nuclear power plant. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to City Pulse here on 89FM, The Impact. I'm Burl Schwartz. Let's get back to excerpts of the people we featured in last week's annual City Pulse People issue. Next up is Willard Walker. Walker is 86 and retired after a long career in public service here in Lansing. He's also a graduate of a historically black Albany State University in Georgia. Bill Castanier interviewed him as well. One of the things that I admire about you, you discovered later in life that you really had a bent for art. Tell me about that. Yeah, it was. It's interesting because I didn't have for art and for music both. I had an interest, but not any. I, did, I mean, art was didn't come till a lot later in life, like in in my uh, late forties. So, um, and then it really didn't take off until in into my fifties. And then it just it, and it's all been self-taught, but it's all been an exploration. Um, I, I kind of call it adventures in 
in in art discovery here. I'm just kind of you go through it, you find what works, what doesn't work, and you not knowing what the rules are, you, you just kind of bumble your way through and make some make art. And I know what I've seen in the past, and when you grow up with you know all kinds, of, I'm not a art art historian, but you know seeing Peter Max and the and some of the old uh, um, uh, underground cartoons and comic books of the past. And the art that was in um, a lot of the uh, the uh, uh, music album covers, which were works of art in themselves, um, just that's where things started to evolve. And then I always wanted to do it. And then finally, um, I think it was about the time my mother was battling uh, cancer um, that I discovered um, just to be able to, you know, not worry about drawing within the lines but just kind of just go and go with what you see and and it eventually evolved into you know uh the art that i'm doing now i'm very very proud of it's been a great experience and uh, you know things come when they come to you you know and that's well, you, what happened there. you became when you say things come to when they come to you you became a community artist a kind of a performance art artist tell me a little bit about that yeah that's that's funny i i uh i was very fortunate at the early start of my art to run into uh folks uh like John Addis and who who had a little gallery and shop up in Old Town. He he saw my art at Jessica Decker's uh, place, which Jessica Decker I can't thank enough for her coffee shop and the her, the ability to put art up there. And Jessica, uh the art I did there, uh she basically we used to work at the Irish pub and, and I used to draw there and it's, it's, uh, that folks would ask for paintings and I would do them and, you know, I'd never done before. So it was kind of a jump into the deep end of the pool. And from that, that's how I got, uh, Jessica in, uh, to be able to put stuff up there. But even before that, at Gone Wired, the, the folks there were very kind in letting me, uh, do a display there when they were called Gone Wire before they became the avenue. So I've been, uh, you know, it, it's it's knowing the people in your community and not hesitating to uh, to, to to talk to folks and, and inquire and having folks know that you do something and then collaborating. You know, I see, I see the art that I do helping the city that I'm in and the community. Um, if I can help, that's great. If they like it, it draws people in. And I think that's, that's kind of the, the the public art thing. Um, I've been very fortunate to be asked through the, the Arts Council uh, of Greater Lansing to uh, work on um, the steering committee for for uh, placemaking summits we have, um, which are fascinating. Um, it, that's eye-opening uh, for for what you can do in your community with public art. And they asked me to paint uh, uh, on Michigan Avenue in front of the Lansing Center, which I've never done that before. So I said, sure, I'll give that a shot. And that was a blast. That was a lot of fun doing that, uh, painting and then looking up, and there's a state capitol. <laughs> it's like very cool. Um, that led to, you know, before that, it was basically doing chalk art on sidewalks and, you know, on my driveway just to practice, you know, just to get – just, you know, because when you do chalk art, it's going to disappear because of rain. So it'll it'll just be gone. But the the fun part is, is you get an opportunity to redo something and work on your skills. And the, the beauty of that is 
I have uh, I have a, a daycare next around the corner, and they come by every so often and once a day and look at my art. So I got a I got a regular audience that comes by, and they're either they're walking or they're uh, in little carts. Thanks again, Bill. I interviewed Guadalupe Ayea, who at 29 has the important role in the city of Lansing of implementing the mayor's policy on social equity and justice. Here's an excerpt. Are there standards you already use to make sure it's diverse, uh, or are we really starting from scratch in terms of hiring? Um, that is something that I, I don't know much of right now. Um, it is something, you know, um, I'm not, I, it's something that I will be, you know, working on with directly with uh, HR. And it's not something I can't really answer for you correctly, as I'm not, you know, mm-hmm. an expert on that right now. Uh, do, do you, uh, do you come to the position, into this position with uh, certain ideas? This is what diversity should look like in a, uh, within a department, for example. Do, do I have like a... Sorry, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Yeah, well, I mean, for example, the city of Lansing is about 20% black. Does mm-hmm. that mean that roughly speaking, uh, city employees, uh, 20% of city employees should be African-American? Well, it really is depending on, you know, um, where we find like the need. It's not really, um, should it be that? It's like, you know, um, are we providing we are an equal employment, equal employer opportunity uh, organization. So it's really whoever we, um, we're trying to uh, facilitate that where whoever uh, needs the assistance in, um, in pursuing a, like employment, you know, they're, they're able to, to obtain it. So it's not really, you know, how, how much of it should be black, how much should it be Latino? It's really, um, trying to um, equal the field. And uh, I know as a very small businessman that uh, hard as I may try to have uh, to hire uh, uh, people uh, with diversity in mind, that it can be difficult because we're in such a small market. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking for, say, a special someone uh, specialized in that. They may have a journalism degree, uh, and uh, in a city the size of Lansing, it, it's uh, hard to say hire a black reporter. It, it, does the city of Lansing face those same sort of challenges to maintain a diverse? a diverse um, employee uh, group uh, because uh, people tend to go to bigger cities uh, or, uh, with their skills. Yeah, I mean, as you said it, you've, you know, your business has had the difficulty to do so. So I think a lot of uh, organizations are, are struggling within the city and that's what we're trying to, you know, to kind of not a six, but like, like, uh, examine and seeing how we can, you know, um, erase that difficulty, not just within the city, but also, um, throughout the city. Um, and that's why, you know, we are asking, you know, the public to, and the community to, uh, help us, you know, with this work and 
giving us, you know, their recommendations or their input on, you know, how we can um, assist with that. Finally, I wanted to ask you about your your general experiences in Lansing. Are, are you from here uh, originally? So I was born in California, grew up in El Salvador, and uh, came to Michigan, uh, Lansing, Michigan, uh, about 21 years ago. No. So when I was like around in like third grade. So I've been here in the city since, except for when I, in my college um, decided to come back to the city uh, because this is what I consider my home, where my family lives and where I started my family. What is your impression of the city of Lansing in terms of diversity? Not, not city government, but just your mm -hmm. experience growing up here and living. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I feel like Lansing is very diverse. Um, there's a, a huge immigration and refugee population and um, I I love it uh, because I you know I, I feel comfortable and I've been able to get um, you know be still celebrate my culture you know this is City Pulse on 88.9 FM WDVM I'm Burl Schwartz and let's return to our interviews with uh, the people we featured in the January 6th people issue next is Cameo, Cameo King, the founder of Grit, Glam, and Guts, a nonprofit that helps teenage girls. King, 37 years old, also runs the Good Girl podcast. Podcast. Todd Haywood interviewed her. You know, you went to, to Howard University, which I find amazing. I, I, I know that it's a great university, so you can brag about that if you want. Thank but, you. Thank you, because it, it's, right, it's right here. It's right here. <laughs> I think it's great. What everybody else thinks, I don't care. Uh, but within that context, what um, is that sort of where you found this voice to, to really find ways to empower women and, and girls to really find themselves? Because that, that's really what it sounds like to me, is that you're helping people on their own searches. Um, I think the work I do, I think it's rooted in... Um, being the best and the highest expression of yourself. And I think that comes with the freedom. I think that comes with healing. And so that's the, that's the groundwork for the work I do, but I think it is driven. Um, the, the thing that it's driven by, I think it's just something that is innate in me, um, that it may have been developed and cultivated while I was at Howard University, but it's essentially me seeking the truth the truth in every situation. And this is how I know it's been inside of me since I was, you know, a little babe. Uh, I was at a school assembly. I think it may have been third grade or second grade. And it was a, um, <laughs> like a drug-free assembly about all the drugs you should say no to. And they were talking about, you shouldn't do this type of drug or drugs are bad. And I raised my hand. Um, and this is me all the way in the back, you know, little baby cameo, raised my hand. And I asked, I said, why, why are we only saying no to those type of drugs? And they said, well, those type of drugs are really bad. And then, and then they went on to the next person. So I'll raise my hand again, uh, uh, raise my hand again. And they were like, yeah, you have another question? You know, again, little baby cameo, third grade. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, but there are other drugs. And they were like, oh, like alcohol where there are, you know, there are um, type of restrictions on it. And, I, and you know, then, then I sat down, I raised my hand again. And my teacher told me to put my hand down. And I was like, no. I said, how come cigarettes are legal? <laughs> like that was <laughs> 
and so I knew I was seeking the truth in that time. And I understood like, you know, like we legalize some things and some things we don't. And why is that? There has to be something else behind that. And so that has always been inside of Cameo. So using that, I guess I have to ask the question, is there a role model in your life that sort of helped frame that? Um, I think, I think my mom taught me really great lessons early on that definitely cultivates this gift. And that definitely, um, I think, you know, when this gift goes out into the marketplace, when I say the marketplace, I'm talking about the world. Um, I think you have to have a level of integrity um, for people to really believe and hear your heart that you're asking genuine questions for a genuine truth. And so I think when you talk about role models, I think my mom, I don't know if she knew it was there or she was just like, oh my gosh, this child talks so much. Um, <laughs> ask so many questions. Um, but there are things she taught me. And I think the number one thing she taught me and she continued to teach me was about integrity. And it was really about, and my mom is such a, a person of integrity, um, integrity and telling the truth and being honest and um, being honest with yourself. You know, that is something that is just naturally occurring, I think, in my family, like holding no punches. And because I grew up in that environment, like I'm used to it and I also understand what it births, like it really births a freedom in us. And um, I, and I have all these stories, but, but these are just like milestones that I remember. I was um, um, a very confident child, I believe, in certain areas. And uh, I think my mom probably overheard me being, I don't want to say being a mean girl, but somewhat defending myself like, oh, she's not going to talk to me like that. Or I wish she would. And, you know, just, just mouth. And Cameo, I was a small, like I'm tall now, but I couldn't have been like if the wind blew the wrong way. I would blow with it. You know, I was, a, I was a small child. And so my mom asked me, she said, Cameo, you know, she said, Cameo, you know, you're, 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 you, you know, you're talking a lot of smack there. <laughs> you know, are you sure you can back it up? And I'm looking at my mom like, what do you mean? Are you like, you're always confident me. What do you mean I can back it up? And then she, and then she said, she says, Cameo, you're not that big. You can lose a fight, you know? So whatever you're going to talk, make sure you can back it up. And lo and behold, the next day at school, I think I was still talking smack. I said, but you may be able to beat me up, but I'm not going to let you do this and this and this. <laughs> so I think that was definitely a part of my rearing and, and, and just making sure when I say what I say, it is the truth as I know it. And I mean it without a shadow of a doubt. Thanks, Todd. Finally, a poet, Hannah Krauss Friedberg. Krauss Friedberg is 40 years old. Her day job as being a medical director at Michigan State University. She started writing poetry at age six. Her first collection is due out next month. Larry Cosentino spoke to her. When did you first start questioning or realizing that there was another way to to live or to look at the world? Um, I think probably in high school. Uh -huh. um, and it wasn't even that I, it wasn't even that I, thought, oh, I'm going to stop being religious. It was more that, like, and I think this is not actually uncommon, like, I was a smart girl in a culture that told girls that they couldn't do sort of the ultimate academic things, like, mm -hmm. um, like the way that you, in Brooklyn, the way for a man, like, the, the pinnacle of academic or scholarly achievement is to study the Talmud mm -hmm. and to be good at it. 
and only men are allowed to do it. And I really knew that I could study Talmud then a lot, like better than a lot of men that I knew, mm-hmm. but I wasn't allowed. Mm-hmm. And that really, like, that was really, but there was a lot of stuff that came with it, right? Like if you said things that were in class that were too smart, they told you that no one would marry you. Like there was a lot of, there was a lot of like, put like it wasn't a good place to be like a smart female kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really rebelled against that. That made me really angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what were the repercussions, though, at least for you personally and in your family? And then, I mean, uh, did you find support somewhere, uh, you know, from whether it was from your family or from friends or, you know, or somewhere outside? Um, I was lucky. Um, I went to... Um, I went to Brooklyn College, um, and I was in a really small. Um, I was a really. It, I was in a really small, really great um, honors program, mm-hmm. and then I applied to graduate school um, to do my doctorate in archaeology, and they gave me a stipend. So, like, I just. So I was. I was financially independent. I was able to leave, and I left. Wow. And then once, once I left, um, like I was living in a world where, um, you know, very very orthodox Jews don't go for doctorates in that way, or it's rare. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like, I met Jews who were not so religious, and I met non-Jews, and I, like, sort of started to develop an identity as a as a more secular person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And along the way, let's not forget poetry. Um, had you discovered poetry, or, or uh, either as a reader or as, as a creator of poetry by this time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started writing poetry. My parents actually did not grow up religious. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, they had a lot of quirks that I, they had a lot of like interests and awarenesses that I think other parents in that community didn't have. So I started like writing like little kids poems when I was six. Wow. Uh-huh. And they were really encouraging. And they were always like, you know, they always talked about it as like a great thing that I could do. Um, and my, my grandparents who weren't religious were very encouraging. And so I kind of just kept doing it. Um, and I always read. I read poetry from the time I was fairly little, um, mm-hmm. and my mother read it to us also. That's interesting, though. This, that sounds kind of at first blush contrary to the kind of life that you describe growing up. It was. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that uh, – how can I put this? Um, then were you able to get support from your parents as you, you know, as you came to, um, you know, break out of the – expectations of doing, you know, doing certain things as a woman or as a girl? Not really. No? I think that, um, I mean, I didn't talk to them for about a decade, and now I sort of have sporadic contact with them. But I think oh, that, um, okay. oh. um, I mean, I also came out, I, I also, when I stopped being religious, I also came out as gay, which did not thrill them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, um, I think that they were like a lot of, people who start new li- like who start new ways of life like they start as adults and they don't really understand the ramifications that that would have for children growing up in that environment and they mm-hmm. didn't to- they also didn't totally understand the ways that they were different from other parents i think um i don't think it ever occurred to my mother that other parents didn't read their children like secular poetry mm-hmm. i don't i just don't think she thought about it um but it was definitely like a thing that she knew how to do because she didn't grow up religious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it was kind of like that. Like, I don't think they totally, they let us read far more secular books than my parents, than my kids, my fr- friend's parents did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
they knew a lot more secular books than my friend's parents did and they owned more. So like, it was like, there were things that I think that they just hadn't ever, it hadn't ever occurred to them were, were different from that way of life, but they just were. Thanks Larry. And thanks to our arts editor, Skylar Ashley for producing this week's show. We'll have a new one next week for city pulse. I'm Burl Schwartz. Thanks for tuning in.